Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. In honor of our waltz to May and the final crunch to get to the CFA exam, seven, eight weeks out, Gina Martin-Adams darkens uh, the door. Gina, level one, definitely level two exam, CFA. You get up to a, a, a compare and contrast of what a company makes down the income statement as compared to their debt. And right now, with all of the changes, the Fed, interest rates are going higher. What about the economy? How are companies doing that are at that tippy-tippy point of, say, EBITDA to debt or whatever other ratio of, of cash flow to debt you want to look at? What do you see? Uh, yeah, really interesting transition in how stock prices of heavily indebted companies are performing relative to those that have less debt in the equity market here in the U.S. right now. Certainly, leverage is becoming a much bigger driver of equity market performance. When we look at things like cash ratios, for example, the highest cash ratio companies in the S&P 500 are outperforming their low ratio cash is good right counterparts. Now. Cash is yeah. very good. Uh, debt relative to EBITDA, the companies with lower debt relative to EBITDA, lower debt relative to market cap are dramatically outperforming right. their high debt counterparts as well. So certainly investors are looking for stability and looking for capacity right. to pay and debt ratios to guide them regarding um, company allocations within so, the equity market. Mr. Diamond had a 46-page love note, and there in the middle of it was textbook Jamie, which was Fortress Diamond. How fortressy is Fortress Diamond? Is he is he too conservative? Well, when it comes to the financials, uh, I think that the Fed is now pointing to the fact that maybe that they have been forced to be con too conservative over a long period of time, and they're starting to consider easing some requirements, such as the supplemental leverage ratio and the like. So I do think that we are starting to recognize institutionally that the banks have become extremely conservative. Um, there is a movement to start to maybe unlock some of that trapped capital. Uh, you know, there is question mark as to whether this is the right point in the cycle to do this. Some Fed uh, folks, such as Lael Brainerd, have suggested maybe we don't want to do this at the tail end of the cycle. Just unlock all this capital, unleash the capital for the banks to start lending in mass. But nonetheless, um, I think that the banks, especially the largest banks, have generally been extraordinarily conservative this cycle. And some of that is due to simple regulation. Yeah. And I think for the banks this quarter, it's going to be a big test for them, Gina, as to, to who actually has a really good trading business. Yeah. Because volatility was the thing that wasn't there and the thing that everybody complained about. And then in the first quarter of this year, they got what they've been asking for. Right. Can they deliver? Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. I mean, one of the things that we've noted persistently, Jonathan, over the last couple of weeks is there has been no negative guidance from the banks. So that would lead you to suspect that they are going to beat expectations. Yeah. Um, that may have put the bar too high on the other end of the spectrum. I think, bar none, volatility has, has exploded higher. That should be good for the trading businesses. Um, what we're missing is really stronger loan growth, which is a bigger part of bank income as a general sense. So maybe the investment bank uh, investment banking centered groups in the S&P 500 do outperform the traditional banking groups in that kind of environment. 
Uh, generally, though, what I will say most importantly for the financial sector at large is these companies have got to reduce top line growth. Investors are already expecting a beat on the bottom line. They know that tax reform is going to benefit these guys more than most of the rest of the S&P 500. Where we're starting to see performance differentials evolve is on top line growth. We've got to see the sales lines follow through. So for our listeners, um, I think many of us have become accustomed to a tradition of the last few quarters where these executives come out a couple of weeks before earnings and they almost all neg- offer negative guidance at the same time. So we haven't had that, Gina. When we talk mm-hmm. about this top line growth, where does the growth actually come from? What are the areas that you can grow in? Tom mentions Jamie Dimon's annual letter, and the JP Morgan CEO pretty much said everything and everywhere. And yeah. I imagine that's not the case for everybody. Right. Well, I think it's complicated at this stage of the cycle because the yield curve is flattening. Consumer debt levels have already exploded. Where we're missing a lot of growth is really in commercial industrial loans. So we almost, by default, need a capital spending recovery. We need the traditional commercial and industrial companies to spend a bit more, fuel some economic growth, demand more loans so that they can spend. That's the area that's been missing this entire cycle. It seems to be the one area of potential growth going forward when the consumer, frankly, has already done their spending. They've already bought houses. They've already bought cars. They've done a lot of spending already, and they've loaded up on credit card debt again. This is the area that's missing. Well, let's think think about um, a potential expense just to wrap things up. Um, Deposit beta has been very low. Um, In very simple terms, that just means the Fed has hiked interest rates, but the uh, the banks haven't passed that on to anyone that's got a deposit at a bank. Um, Is that going to change? Yes. This is one of the things we're looking for later this year. I think second and third quarter, this is going to be a big issue. Uh, Certainly, the analysts are going to look for guidance on this with this earnings season. When are you going to start to pay more on your deposits? Mm. And what will that mean for margins at the banks is a huge question mark. Gina Martin-Adams, thank you so much. And particularly your patience here within all the international relations we've had to go to and tweets. Uh, this morning. I think the president will start tweeting about EBITDA out of debt. That will get you in here uh, right away. I'm Gina, sure that's next. <laughs> writing all of, with all of our equity coverage for Bloomberg Intelligence, Gina Martin Adams. John, I want you to bring in our next guest because his English accent is clearer than yours. It, it is. I'll give him that. It's Jeffrey Yu. He's UBS Private Banking Head of the UK Investment Office. I always enjoy catching up with yes. Jeff to, to frame what's happening in markets and get some real deep insight as well. Jeff, talk to me about what's going on and why we're switching from one narrative to another so quickly. Uh, well, um, we were having a few discussions about this today and just wondering, um, you know, should there be some kind of asset allocation framework, um, you know, to uh, you know, trade on the back of um, certain um, you know, tweeting going around the world? Um, but it's just the uh, pace um, at this point, and um, investors are actually um, just finding it hard to uh, keep up. And oddly enough, um, have you looked at Bitcoin, for example? You know, so some clients are actually starting to ask that about again. So it's about sorting <laughs> out the noise right now in terms of determining what we should be focusing on and what not to be focusing on. And then after that, you know, how to make decisions on where to invest and how to invest. So a lot of noise right now, but doesn't seem to be too much risk being put on back of that, actually. And Jeff, I guess trying to work out where you find that uncorrelated hedge, that stabilizer for your portfolio, because treasuries have have sort of provided that through the week, but not in a material way. Yields will creep lower by a couple of basis points. What are you saying to clients when they ask you about it? 
Uh, well, so firstly, you know, diversification, you know, that's the easiest answer, but also diversification um, by extension, diversification between listed assets and unlisted assets. So, you know, right now, it's a great time for hedge funds to outperform. It's a great time for um, private equity um, to outperform as well. Find where there's a correlation a breakdown or there's no correlation between market volatility. That's where clients want to be. And, um, you know, there's increasing interest in that. Jeff, the big question, I think, for many people over the last couple of months is vol exploded mm. in the equity market was whether vol mm-hmm. would die down or whether it would bleed into rates, bleed into FX. It hasn't really bled into mm. rates or FX. So you anticipate and it will? Uh, and I would add a third category, bleed into credit, right? So, you know, that's what people are, are watching for as well. Um, so on the FX side, um, I still think it's a bit isolated at this point. You know, we're looking um, at Ruble, you know, that yeah. is um, you know, probably the big driver right now, flows out of um, EM. But right now, treat things idiosyncratically. Uh, Jeff, you, I think our audience has a real understanding of the rate of change of the equity markets, the idea of, you know, you mm-hmm. move every day, the drift of every day. And there's corrections in bear markets. Yield and price are different in bonds. Mm. And as we know, they can get convexity, they can get acceleration. Are Mm -hmm. we anywhere near where normal Mm. linear function in bond yield becomes more aggressive towards higher yields? I don't sense that tipping point at Mm. all. Um, I don't think we're, we're there either, um, and um, there may have been like a, a, a false start or a false dawn, however you want to call it, towards the end of January, early February. But um, for that to happen, again, you need fundamental drivers, and that you could sort of say was a fundamental trigger, maybe positioning in short, um, short uh, treasuries and got a bit heavy after that. But right now, these are not fundamental drivers. We're about to move on to the earnings season, you know, where by and large, and people are expecting um, strong results, and, but there's still a great reluctance to trade off on the back of that. So, um, you know, it's this collection of one-off idiosyncratic events yeah. and it's just very difficult to put in, uh, together a coherent framework. And then as you and I have talked about, the one-off event for me was Draghi's headlines the last go-around, the mm-hmm. last press conference where once again the illusion was, well, we're steeled for inflation, but are we going to see that from America's central bank where even if we get the gyration and base effect and all that, we're steeled mm-hmm. for inflation, but is that where we're going? Um, I think markets want to feel that way. And, you know, we are getting questions now on, like, uh, what's the strike price of the Powell put, right? So it's not, is there a Powell put, but what is the strike price of the Powell put? So uh, if, um, if, if that is the question, then you can see, you know, how, uh, the, uh, so how the narrative has evolved. It's deeper, but isn't in it, Europe, you know, the, Yeah, pardon? It's a whole lot deeper, isn't it, that strike price? It, it, it does seem to be, and uh, there's general, uh, but, but there's general acceptance of that. But the fact that there is a put in place, at least in you know, how that markets are, are, are perceiving things, that's a stabilizing element. I think that's why VIX is, you know, 20 give or take rather than 40 give or take. Jeff, you bring up the earnings, and it's really curious and quite unique in many ways that we've had the route that we've had over the last couple of months, yet earnings mm-hmm. forecasts have increased at the same time. How weird is that? Well, I think, you know, two things, you know, one, uh, so, you know, there are discussions about, you know, how much of the tax windfall is really going to start to come through. Um, is there going to be a multiplier effect, you know, whereby um, mm. the tax windfall, you know, on the corporate side you know, trickles down, you know, famous last words, and how that's going to lift demand. Uh, but on the other side of things, again, if you look at growth, you know, if you look at pricing power, that still is in place. And the energy element is actually quite interesting. I look at why UK is outperforming right mm. now because of energy, right? So, you know, quite a yeah. few different positives actually still in markets. Okay, mm. Jeff, I'm, it's April. I'm behind. Where is a tradable pair in currencies right now? 
Uh, well, believe it or not, um, so still euro dollar right now looks quite favorable. Just look at the reaction after Novotny's comments and saying what a lot of people have been suspecting for a while. Does the ECB want to sneak in a depot rate hike towards the end of the year? First time we've had some explicit comments on that. Yeah. People are still anticipating it because ECB could still surprise the upside. Okay, so then what's your target there? 123.24 now. Can you go large up five, six big figures or is it more nuanced? Mm -hmm. We can absolutely actually you know, think about heading towards 130, but that wow. at 130 or higher, we will so over a six-month horizon and beyond, but then we start to look at evaluations okay. argument. Would that be where ECB says, okay, um, let's hold on for a second. Inflation's still not high enough. Jeffrey, you were this with UBS. We have habits on the Bloomberg that we develop over the years. And one of mine is when I want to see long-term proxy on equities, I go to a mutual fund. It's, it's, I want to keep the name of the fund out of it, which is, is about as grandma and widows as you can get. And I see how they've done. And what Scott Wren knows with Wells Fargo and with decades of experience uh, with the pressures of what should grandma do, grandma's had a heck of a run. One year percentile return, 89th percentile. Three year percentile return, 94th percentile. Five year percentile return, 91st percentile. Scott Wren, it doesn't get better for blue chip stocks than what I just talked about with this, you know, well known American mutual fund. It's actively managed and all that. What does grandma do if it's been this good for five years? Well, Tom, I think Grandma needs to get ready for some lower returns over the course of the next, uh, certainly over the next 10 years on average. So, you know, as you said, I mean, this has been a big run. It's been long-lasting. Um, everything looks good. I would say that, uh, you know, the returns have looked good. But, but you know, it's tough if you're a value guy or yeah. something like that. I mean, you know, it, th there's not really really any value, much value left here. I mean, we're in, we're in probably the last third of the cycle. Um, if it hadn't been for the tax cut going through, uh, growth for the S&P 500 earnings would have been less this year based on our, our analysis than last. Um, you know, I'd make the argument that uh, organic, organically, you know, growth probably peaked in, in 2017. And I certainly don't think that, you know, yeah. 2019, I mean, we're not there yet, but it's going to be a lot slower. Than, than 2018. Yeah, you know, you know, we've been talking about the reach we have, uh, Scott Wren, across this nation. You're in St. Louis, and I notice the reality of Scott Wren's world that you got to fly out to Little Rock on Southwest Airlines, 9:30 a.m. One of the few nonstop flights out of St. Louis to Little Rock to talk to people in Little Rock. Good morning, Arkansas. Again, Scott Wren, those people out there that have had a good run or have missed the run and been in cash, what are they saying to you right now? What are you hearing uh, in your many travels for Wells Fargo? Well, Tom, I have to say that's, that's odd that you mentioned that because actually tomorrow morning I am flying to Little Rock. Um, the Arkansas Derby is this weekend. No, you're I'm, not. Uh, but, but, that is not <laughs> happening. That is amazing. I swear, John. That is I amazing. Swear, John, I am going to the Arkansas <laughs> Derby. I do it every year. We have about 30, you know, 40 people that go, and I leave here okay. tomorrow morning. But, but those people in Little Rock, um, they have been sitting on their hands. They are concerned 
concerned. They are they exactly. are they are confused, and they what they are not doing. The bulk of them um, <clears throat> is stepping in here to the market on this pullback, and I I think they will regret that a year from now. But um, they okay. are concerned about a lot of things going on out there. You and I were advantaged years ago, Scott Rand, by a brilliant guy named John Birbasi on Little Rock's Tyson's Food, and on you know another company out there that did so well, did so well. Tyson's Foods right now, and it's a very changed company, is trading at a normal multiple of like 13 times versus the nosebleeds of everybody else. Do I buy the growthiness of the loved, or do you go buy something like Tyson's Food, which is priced like you and I remember it? I, th- I think there will be a time to buy Tyson food. I just don't think that Staples is the place you want to be right now. We're, we're underweight Staples. We're underweight utilities. Um, you know, we're at the wrong part of the cycle, I think, to hide. I think we want to be a little more assertive and leaning towards the cyclicals at least uh, for a while longer. Um, and then plus, you know, you add in, uh, you know, Staples, that sector, good paying, uh, good dividend rate, uh, utilities, good dividend rate. But, you know, when, when rates are inching higher, and they are only inching slowly higher, uh, that's just another headwind. So I think we're at the wrong point in the cycle. Um, at some point out on the horizon, it'll be time uh, to hide, oh, yeah. but I don't think that time's now. Scott Wren, Senior Global Equity Strategist for Wells Fargo Investment On the way Institute. to the Arkansas Derby. Honest, I cannot believe this. I, I'm just taking the rest of the day Thank off. You. Thing. Let's dive now into a lengthy conversation with Craig Moffat of Moffat Nathanson. We can divide this maybe into his world of wireless and mobile phone value, and then maybe also his colleague, Mr. Nathanson's uh, area of content. Craig, once again, T-Mobile Sprint. I'm exhausted. Are you exhausted? <laughs> Just what's the backstory of this ballet? Well, look, they, they, these, have, these are companies that have have been talking about getting together since about 2013 or so. Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the first time they danced back in 2013-14, they concluded that that under a Democrat administration, there was no way that they were going to be able to get from four to three players in the wireless industry. So they shelved the plans until last year. Last year, from what we understand, it fell apart over valuation and, and control issues. Um, but the you know a, a desperate timeline focuses the mind, and we're what two and a half years away from the next presidential election, a year yeah. and a half away from from primary season, and you've got it. It takes a year to get one of these deals through the DOJ and FCC, so you don't have that much time left anyway. And we're going to go into an FCC auction that will include a quiet period where the companies wouldn't be able to talk to each other. Right. Fall into the winter of this year. So now it's now or never. How is this mating process going in your land of telecommunications? I think of Verizon with a big fat 5% yield, but basically it's gone nowhere for five years. Are these mergers adding value? 
Well, remember, we haven't had these mergers. We've we've talked a lot about these mergers, but we haven't had any mergers. Um, it, it was funny. A year ago, the consensus was that we were going to see a tsunami of different deals. And we saw AT&T announce the acquisition of Time Warner, yeah. but nothing else has happened. And that was actually now goes all the way back to October 2016 that that was announced. And we haven't seen anything of, of any size since then. So... Um, but but look, I, the Verizon and AT and T are are primarily bond proxies. Um, right. They're as equities. They're they're a little bit different animal than the typical okay. equity. And and for a lot of investors, the five percent yield is fine as long as right. they don't um, as long as they don't shed any material amount of value. Pim, yeah. Pim are, are, are these deals that get done at that restaurant, Michael's Restaurant in Midtown, is that where all these deals no, are no, that, that's that. No, that's the place you go after you've done the deal so you can spend the money. Oh, okay. um, well, uh, Craig, the, those Craig, are the media deals, not the telecom deals. Right, so yeah. They, that, that Michael's is for media. Thank uh, you. Thank you, Craig. Um, uh, Craig, uh, how much is Sprint worth? Right now it's $6 and a penny a share. Uh, they've got some decent spectrum. But they need some money, and also SoftBank, which has the big stake, they just raised the money. Tell me how much Sprint you think could be worth. Yeah, you know that's that's the problem, right? Is is when they tried to merge um, a year and a half ago, the exchange ratio, just the ratio of the the equities, um, the stock prices was about eight to one, and by all accounts. Um, T-Mobile and Deutsche Telekom, Deutsche Telekom is the parent company of T-Mobile, um, were very unhappy with press reports that they were going to do a deal at market because Sprint trades at a huge premium to T-Mobile. And it's always a head-scratcher for everybody in the industry, I think, to wonder why Sprint trades at such a premium, um, given that its performance is poor, it doesn't have any real visibility to being free cash flow positive, um, and it has a tremendous amount of debt, not just on the balance sheet, but also off the balance sheet. And yet it trades at a big premium to the growth engine of the industry, um, T-Mobile, and, and that ironically makes it much harder to do a deal. Um, now the exchange ratio, it, it had widened to as much as 12 times. That's presumably somewhat more palatable to T-Mobile and Deutsche Telekom shareholders. But even that may not be enough. And ironically, because there's always so much short interest in Sprint, as soon as the story came out that they were talking about a merger earlier this week, Sprint stock price rose by 17%, and, and the exchange ratio dropped by a full turn, and we're, we're down to 10 and a half. And again, it's not clear that that's interesting to T-Mobile and Deutsche Telekom. And remember, even at eight times, um, SoftBank finally walked away from the deal and said they weren't happy with that exchange ratio because they'd be ceding too much control. So you shouldn't look at this and say that it's going to be easy just because there is a gun to their head with respect to timing. They still have to agree on valuation. And it's not easy because Sprint stock price is so overvalued. Thank you for the briefing, Craig Moffitt. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.